Good morning, ladies. Um, we're talking about Chumash Bereshi, the first book of the Torah, Genesis, if you like, in English. And I want to begin really by, first of all, just giving a foundational idea about what is Torah. What is Torah? So a lot of people mistakenly believe that Torah is a history book, or maybe it's a science book, or it's a book of myths and legends. It's a book of laws. But what we really need, it's, or it's a great piece of literature. But we call Torah, Torah Chayim, which basically means instruction. The word Torah means instruction. That's why, for example, a teacher is called a mora, right? Mora, ora. They are connected. So the Torah are, is a book that we call Torah Chayim, Instructions for Living. Okay? Because life and the world is a very complex place, we need a manual in order to be able to be successful in this very, very complex world. And we believe that everything is in the Torah. As it says in the Talmud, turn it around and around because everything is in it. We also say that Torah is the blueprint of creation, that before God created the physical world and everything in it, he looked into the Torah. The Torah was the blueprint. Just like an architect looks at his blueprint while he's creating the house that he's going to make or the building, so too God created from the Torah, which tells us that everything in the physical world, if we were to take it back to its source, to its spiritual um, source from where it came, it would turn into the Torah. The, to the, the world around us is just the Torah, the spiritual Torah, made manifest into the physical world. So when we learn Torah, we're really learning about the why. Science talks about the what of creation, but it doesn't address the question of why. Sorry, I also wanted to just dedicate this class to my aunt, Hanna Baskansia, um, who we lost. Oh. Last week, she was my father's youngest sister. They just got up from Shiva this morning. And very sadly, she's the end of an era, as everybody's saying, because it's my on my father's side, she was the last Monson from that generation. Rabbi Monson's sister, for those of you who knew him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Anyway, it's a very big loss, so I want to dedicate this class to her and her wonderful family. And what I wanted to say is that the very beginning of the Torah begins with an enlarged letter. It begins with the letter Bet in Bereshit. And the letter Bet is a closed letter that tells you to go forward. Don't go backwards, okay? And in general, life is full of that. The Difficulty, but the necessity of putting one step in front of the other, especially when we are face to face with the questions of why, which only human beings ask, right? There is no other 
creation on the planet that asks that question, why? Why do bad things happen to good people? These are questions that only the human mind is able to engage in. And the purpose of the study of the Torah is to be able to answer these questions for us. Okay, so the first idea is the idea of, um, as I was saying, that, that the Torah is the blueprint of creation and everything is in it. The other, con the other very important foundational view in Judaism is number one, that there is a creator, right? Uh, Rashi asks the question, if this is a book of laws, why don't we just begin the book with the first law? Why do we need all these stories in Bereshi before we get to the first mitzvah, which is, you know, to, to, um, to mark the new moon, which mm -hmm. comes later in Shemot? And the answer that, one of the answers that's given is we need to start with the creation of the world because if there is no commander, then why would we follow his commandments? In other words, we have to prove in a sense that this world didn't just happen. It wasn't random or chaotic, but that there was a creator with intention who created this world with a purpose. The same way we know on a very simple level that somebody doesn't create a blueprint and build a building without purpose, without intention. So, you know, even more so the creator of the universe. You know, the, the example that they give to bring this down in a very real way is, you know, a few examples that I've read is, you know, if you're looking at the painting of the Mona Lisa and somebody were to tell you, you know, well, you know what happened when Da Vinci was painting that painting, it was Da Vinci, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, he, he, he just had this empty canvas uh, you know, in front of him or lying on his desk, if you like, and some paints were opened up beside it. And there was suddenly a tremor in the earth, some kind of earthquake. The paints just happened to spill on the canvas and they created this incredible masterpiece of the Mona Lisa. So anybody with intelligence would never believe such a story. But people who do not believe that there was a purposeful creator behind the creation of the world are basically asking you to believe that it just happened randomly with no intention and no purpose. Or a great sonnet, Shakespeare, who says, you know, I was sitting at my desk with an empty piece of paper. There was a bottle of ink next to me. It happened to spill because of this earthquake. And lo and behold, you know, Hamlet appeared in front of my eyes. Impossible to believe that. So the atheists have a much more difficult time explaining creation than one who is a believer. Okay, which again, doesn't mean that we don't have questions. And this is what the Torah comes to help us with our questions. <clears throat> Okay, um, so the, the first idea that I wanted to talk about, if you have your Chumash in front of you, and perhaps many of you have heard this before, but one of the first creations was let there be light. 
And the question that's asked about let there be light is, you know, the sun was not created until the fourth day of creation. So what was this light that was created on this first day? This primal light, as it's called. And Rashi, who's the foremost commentator on the plain meaning of the verse in the Torah, teaches us that this original light was of an intense spiritual quality. And God saw that the wicked were unworthy of enjoying it. And therefore, he separated it from the rest of the universe and set it aside for the use of the righteous in the world to come. Okay, you can see this on the on page three in Chumash Bereshis, if that's what you have in your art scroll. Um, the commentary four or five. Now, the same light that we say was reserved for the righteous in the world to come, we also say that, that this light is embedded in the Torah. And that's why when a person learns Torah, what they're doing is releasing this primal light, this very spiritual light, into the world. Now, God didn't want the wicked to be able to use it because they would have been able to use it for evil purposes. So he hid it. Where did he hide it? In the Torah. And of course, for the righteous to enjoy in the next world. So I just wanted to go back to the beginning again, because I missed a very important part. So back to the word Bereshi. So in the beginning, God created. Now that's the way this is translated. In the beginning, here it says, of God's creating the heavens and the earth. When the earth was astonishingly empty with darkness upon the surface of the deep, et cetera, et cetera. And then God said, let there be light. So <clears throat> right at the very beginning of the Torah, there's a problem with the word Bereshi. Because if you, if you would translate that word properly, Bereshi means in the beginning of. So the next word should have been in the beginning of the world or in the beginning of time. It does not make sense that grammatically they use the word Bereshi. If they wanted to say this is the order of creation, they would have said Barishona at the first. Okay? Yeah. So this is the first problem, the first question. And we know that when we learn Torah, whenever there's a grammatical issue, whenever there's a word out of place or <clears throat> something that doesn't match sequentially, we always have the idea of dig here. This is where you will find the deep secrets. This is where you will release the light that's hidden inside the Torah. <clears throat> so, Bereshi can also be read as <clears throat> for the sake of Reishi. The bet can mean for the sake of or because of. So we read this word in a completely different way. For the sake of Reishi. And what's Reishi? For the sake of beginning. So what we're saying, Rashi says, is the world was created for the sake of the things that are called beginning, that God brought the world into being for those things that are so important that the Torah calls them reishis. God is telling us, I created this world for the sake of reishit, of beginning. 
Now, who are the beginning according to this? These three things are the Torah, which is called Rashid, Israel, which is called Rashid, and the Jewish people. I created the world for those three things is what God is telling us is embedded in the very first word of the Torah. Instead of reading it, it as in the beginning of, which is a problem because it should say in the beginning of the world. Instead, it says in the beginning of God created. There's no noun, right? That's why there's the question. So instead of reading it as in the beginning, read it as for the sake of Reishi, God created the heavens and the earth. Who is Reishi? Again, Torah, Israel, and the Jewish people. Without those three things God's telling us, there would have been no purpose to my creating the world, to my having created the universe. Okay? Now, the next idea here is there's many names for God. There are at least 72 names for God, which, which um, connote all of the different aspects of God, that even with all those names, we still obviously can't fathom who God is but it gives us a clue. So the name that's used here is Elohim, the third word of the Torah, right? So what does this word Elohim connote? And we've talked about this before. Why does the Torah use this word Elohim? So Elohim always denotes the attribute of justice as ruler, lawgiver, and judge of the world. Now, justice is the ideal state of the world, because the idea is, is that man should be treated exactly as he deserves, according to his deeds. But because man was not virtuous enough to survive such harsh scrutiny, God adds the attribute of mercy when man is created. And you can see this if you flip ahead. When we talk about man's creation, actually, I, I hope you have the same homish as me, but it's Bet, page 10 in my homish. And it's Dalid, Pasuk Dalid. It says, these are the products of the heaven and the earth. This is after the seventh day. God's created everything, including man, right? And now everything is done. And it says, these are the products of the heaven and the earth when they were create, created on the day that Hashem Elohim. This is the first time that we have God's name as Hashem and Elohim, right? And that's because this was after the creation of man. And now God is going to have to act in his world, not just as judge, where you are judged for your deeds. And if you know you do good, you are rewarded. And if you do bad, you're punished. And that's the end of you, off with your head, so to speak, right? But now God's mixing the attribute, his attribute of com compassion together with his attribute of judgment in order that man can continue and go on. Interestingly, when it comes to the creation of every creation, it says at the end, of each thing that God creates, and God saw that it was good. The only ex and and this implies that this creation was complete. 
The only place where we don't see this is on day two with the creation of the heavens because the water was split with the upper waters and the lower waters and God actually didn't finish it until the third day. So the second day, it doesn't say God saw that it was good because it wasn't complete. Tuesday, we're told, right? We have an expression in Judaism, pa'amayim kitov. The third day of creation, God says it was good twice. So we always say Tuesday's a lucky day, right? It's a good day to get married. It's a good day to do a business deal. Tuesdays are considered a lucky day in Judaism because God twice says, and it was good, right? Now, not to get into that too much, but going back to the creation of man, when man is created, God does not say it was good. It's the only time it's omitted. And Rashi says there, it's because man can never be complete. Man is a creation that, so to speak, describing him is that he is an unfinished being. He's always striving, always striving for greatness. Again, this is what makes us different than the rest of the mammals and the animal kingdom, which, you know, the evolutionists and, you know, our society today would like us to believe that we're nothing but just a bunch of apes. But different than apes, different than any other mammal that walks the planet, we are constantly searching and searching for meaning, searching for answers to our questions, striving. And this is why God says, God does not complete um, the description of man's creation with, it was good, okay? And going back to the idea, God had to now, at this point with man's creation, he had to now plug in this aspect of mercy and compassion. Because of course, man is destined to do wrong based on the fact that he has free will. So if we look at another um, page, hold on, page eight in mine, I hope it's in yours, but I'll tell you where. Um, chapter one, verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So I want to focus on that for the rest of the class, I think. Okay, I think that, that we'll have time for that. So here we have the creation of man, okay? And there's a lot of different ideas that we can learn from this. One idea I really want to talk about, and then we're going to end the class with the second idea, going back to um, this idea of man being created imperfect with the ability to choose. Um, which is what makes him imperfect, the ability to have free will, free choice. But let's look at the first part of this passage. It says, God said, let us make man. So the question that Rashi asks and others is, who is he talking to? Okay, Risa maybe knows the answer. There's a few different answers. One answer is he's talking to all of the, he's talking to the earth. Because we know God was composed of the man, sorry, man was composed of the earth. And it was really, so to speak, a partnership between the earth and God, if you like. That earth, you're going to make the physical body of man, right? God takes the earth and he forms man out of the earth. Man is actually called the chala of the earth. The same way we form chala, there's a mystical connection 
between challah and the first human being, okay? And then, of course, God supplies the spirit, right? God breathes in through the nostrils of man and creates the spirit. So when God says, let us make man, he's talking to the earth. He's talking to the elements, earth, water, wind, and fire. Let's make this microcosm, right, which will contain all the elements, okay? The second idea is that God is talking to the angels, let us make man. Now, there's a problem, however, because, let me just find where it is. I just lose my place. All right, let us make man, okay, on page eight. Number 26, for those of you who have it. When Moses wrote the Torah, when Moshe wrote the Torah and came to this verse, let us make man. I'm frozen. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Which is in the plural and implies chas v'shalom, or God forbid, right? That there is more than one creator. He said, sovereign of the universe. Why do you furnish a pretext for heretics to maintain that there's a plurality of divinities? Okay, so the problem with this verse, let us make man, implies that there's more than one creator in the world, that God needs the help of others in order to create man. And what Moses is saying is, why would you write that? Why would you give people the opportunity to believe that there's more than one God? We know, obviously, in Judaism, it's axiomatic. It's founded on the principle that there is only one God, right? Which is another reason why, for example, the first day of creation, it says Yom Echad instead of Yom Rishon. Instead of saying it was the first day, it says it was day one. And Rashi there says it's alluding to the fact that there was only God alone in the universe creating the world. One God right? So Moses says to God, why would you write, let us make man? You're giving people the opportunity to say, you see, there isn't one God. There's many gods, like the Greeks believed, and like all of the pagan societies believe. And what does God say back to Moses? He says, right. Whoever wishes to err will err. Whoever wants to make that mistake, he's got free will. He can make that mistake. If he wants to be a heretic, if he wants to be an atheist, if he wants to believe in many gods, if he wants to be a pantheist and believe in nature, I gave him the ability to do that. And if he wants to read the Torah and look for places that will get him off the hook, so to speak, from this concept of one God who's commanding, then let him do so, okay? And he goes on, he says, whoever wishes to err will err. Instead, let them learn from their creator who created all. Yet when he came to create man, he took counsel with the ministering angels. You know what's more important to me, God is saying? God is saying, I have a very important lesson to teach here when I say, let us make man. I don't know why I'm frozen over here in the picture. It's okay. Um, and that lesson is the lesson of humility. Because the root of all negative character traits 
is the root of anochias, self-absorption, which includes arrogance, right? Me, me, me. God himself, the master of the universe, the creator of everything that we know about the universe, said, I will risk people thinking there's more than one God just for the sake of teaching this very important lesson that wherever you see my greatness, and there's nowhere where my greatness is more apparent than in the creation of man, there too you will see my humility. And Rashi goes on and says, God took counsel with the ministering angels who were created on day two, because God wanted to teach that one should always consult others before embarking upon major new initiatives. And he wasn't deterred by the possibility that some might choose to find a sacrilegious implication that there's more than one God. Instead, God says, whoever wishes to err can err. Let him make that mistake. Let him choose that road. I give him free will, right? But one who sincerely seeks the truth will see it. And one who looks for an excuse to go away from me or to blaspheme, as the word is used, will find it. Give you another example of that in the Torah. The Torah is full of examples of where people have a choice, how they want to read it and how they want to see it. One of the most famous is when the sea was split. At the splitting of the sea, I won't, I don't have the pasuk in front of me, but just before the sea splits for the Jewish people to go through this incredible miracle, right? That we speak about at the Seder, etc. The Pasuk before says there was a strong east wind that was blowing. And the rabbis there talk about the idea that if people want to say, if the scientists or the weatherman or anybody who wants to get out of believing in this miracle that God did, they could say, you know what? It really wasn't such a miracle. There was this east wind. It was blowing. And you know what? If, if an east wind blows at exactly the right, you know, uh, pressure and in the right, you know, uh, direction. And at this point of time in the day or in the year or in the month or when the moon is high or when the sun is like this, it could split seas. It could make the water stand up. So there too, the commentaries say, where a person wishes to err, if they want to see things in a natural way of explaining something so that I can get rid of, so to speak, this concept of God, he can do so. So, and this always is the idea that God provides a way out, right? That is the whole idea of the rest of the sentence, which is, let us make man in our image. And this is where we're going to go to this other idea. And then he continues, in our image after our likeness. What does that mean that we're made in our image and after our likeness? Okay. So what is a tselem elokim? The fact that a human being is made in the image of God. And only man is fashioned in the image of God. So, you know, basically there's two ideas of this image of God, but we'll focus on this concept of free will. The same way that God, so to speak, is independent and is free to do whatever he wants. He endowed human beings with this ability as well, right? And only human beings that we choose, that we can go in a good way 
or we can go in a bad way. And that's what makes us godlike, this incredible opportunity to be able to choose. And of course, the risk that goes along with it. So I want to share with you now something from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs Zatzal, whose stuff, as you know, I really like. And I'd like to, for the rest of this class, just look at what he has to say about the idea that human beings are created in the image of God. <clears throat> Hopefully my voice won't. So let's see if we can get through this till the end of the class. So when God, so this is called the faith of God. Can everybody see it? Yeah. Okay. When God gave humans the freedom to act well, he gave them the freedom to act badly. So again, we have this dichotomy. On the one hand, we have this lofty soul, which only wants to do right and good. But so to speak, we also have this physical body, which chooses the temporary and the finite over the infinite and the long term. It wants immediate gratification. So man, in a sense, is half angel and half animal. And the struggle that we all we all go through when we want to, when we're in, in, in a battle between choosing correctly and choosing incorrectly, is this struggle between our physical selves, which basically die, and our short-term, and our, our spiritual selves, which are much more long-term, just to, again, you know, paint that picture of what a human being is made by and why we have such a struggle between the body and the soul. And it's in that struggle that our free will lies. So let's go on and see what he says, what Rabbi Sachs says. There is a deep question at the heart of Jewish faith, and it is very rarely asked. As the Torah opens, we see God creating the universe day by day, bringing order out of chaos, life out of inanimate matter, flora and fauna in all their wondrous diversity. At each stage, God sees what he has made and declares it good. What then went wrong? How did evil enter the picture, setting in motion the drama of which the Torah, in a sense, the whole of history is a record? The short answer is man, homo sapiens, us. We alone of the life forms thus far known to us have free will, choice, and moral responsibility. Cats do not debate the ethics of killing mice. Vampire bats do not become vegetarians. Cows do not worry about global warming. So those who would compare human beings to animals or man are way off is what Rabbi Sachs is saying. It is this complex capacity to speak, think, and choose between alternative courses of action that is at once our glory, our burden, and our shame. When we do good, we are little lower than the angels. When we do evil, we fall lower than the beasts. Why then did God take the risk of creating the one form of life 
capable of destroying the very order he had made and declared good. Why did God create us? So this is a question, of course, that's been posed in many different ways. And here's one of the answers. That's the question posed by the Gemara in Sanhedrin. When the Holy One, blessed be he, came to create man, he created a group of ministering angels and asked them, do you agree that we should make man in our image? And here we have the conversation that took place in this Rashi that we just learned that God consulted those below him to teach us that no matter how great you are, you should consult with those beneath you. And it was this lesson in humility that God was risking that people should think there's more than one God with the words, let us make man. He would risk that just for the sake of teaching the importance of humility. Again, there are many, many things that God says about arrogance. One is that where there is arrogance, where there is an arrogant person, there is no room for me. I can't fit into that room where that person is. There's no room, not just the room in the entire world for the both of us. Okay, so do you agree that we should make man in our image? They replied, sovereign of the universe, what will be his deeds? God showed them the history of mankind. The angels replied, what is man that you are mindful of him? In other words, let man not be created. What did God do with this advice? It says God destroyed the angels. Okay, these angels that gave him this advice, he destroyed and created a second group. And he asked them the same question and they gave the same answer. Why would you want this man who is going to destroy and ruin your world? And God destroyed them as well. He created a third group of angels and they replied, sovereign of the universe, the first and second group of angels told you not to create man and it did not avail them. You did not listen. What can, what then can we say but this? The universe is yours. Do with it as you wish. And then God created man. Okay. But when it came to the generation of the flood and then to the generation of those who built the Tower of Babel, the angel said to God, chutzpah, huh? Were not the first angels right? See how great is the corruption of mankind. And God replied, and this is from Isaiah, Yeshaya, even to old age, I will not change. And even to gray hair, I will still be patient. So this pasuk from Isaiah is talking to us about what we know about God, especially through this period that we've just gone through of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that God is a God of forgiveness, that God is a God who is patient and hopes that even the wicked of the world will do tshuva, and wake up and change their ways, and that mankind will turn, as the word teshuva means, in the direction of God. So God is saying, I am very patient. Technically, the Gemara is addressing a stylistic challenge in the text. For every other act of creation in Genesis, the Torah tells us God said, let there be light. 
let there be heavens, let there be fauna and flora, and there was. However, in the case of the creation of humankind alone, there was a preface, a prelude, where it says, as we have been looking at, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Who is the us? And why doesn't it just say, let there be man? Why do we have this preamble? In their seemingly innocent childlike, actually subtle and profound way, the sages answered both questions by saying that with, to quote Hamlet, an enterprise of this pith and moment, God consulted with the angels. They were the us. But now the question becomes very deep indeed. For in creating humans, God brought into, the ex into existence the one life form with the sole exception of himself, capable of freedom and choice. That is what the phrase means when it says, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. For the salient fact is that God has no image. To make an image of God is the archetypal act of idolatry. This means not just the obvious fact that God is invisible. He cannot be seen. He cannot be identified with anything in nature. Not the sun, the moon, thunder, lightning, the ocean, or any of the other objects or forces people worshipped in those days. In this superficial sense, God has no image. That, wrote Sigmund Freud in his last book, Moses and Monotheism, was Judaism's greatest contribution. By worshipping an invisible God, Jews tilted the balance of civilization from the physical to the spiritual. Right? Judaism is maybe the only religion, right, that we know the second commandment is not to create idols, not to create physical manifestations of God and, and, and bow to them, but that God remains invisible. But the idea that God had no image goes far deeper than this. It means that we cannot conceptualize God, understand him, or predict him. God is not an abstract essence. He is a living presence. That is the meaning of God's own self-definition to Moshe, the burning bush. I will be what I will be. I will be what I choose to be. I'm the God of freedom who endowed humankind with freedom. And I am about to lead the children of Israel from slavery to freedom. Okay, how much more is this? Okay, good. Okay. So back to this idea again. When God made humanity in his image, it means that he gave humans the freedom to choose so that you can never fully predict what they will do. They too, within the limits of our finitude and mortality, will be what they choose to be which means that when God gave humans the freedom to act well, he also gave them the freedom to act badly. There is no way of avoiding this dilemma, even for God himself. And so it was. Adam and Eve sinned. The first human child, Cain, murdered the second, Abel. And within a short space of time, the world was filled with violence. In one of the most searing passages in the whole of Tanakh, we read at the end of this week's Parsha, God saw that man's wickedness on earth was increasing. Every impulse of his innermost thought was only for evil. All day long, God regretted that he had made man on earth, and he was pained. There's that word sadness again. 
to his very core. Hence the angel's question, the ultimate question at the heart of faith. Why did God, knowing the risks and dangers, make a species that could and did rebel against him, devastate the natural environment, hunt species to extinction, and oppress and kill his fellow man? The Talmud, imagining a conversation between God and the angels, is suggesting a tension within the mind of God himself. And the answer God gives the angels is extraordinary. Even to old age, I will not change. And even to gray hair, I will still be patient. Meaning, I, God, am prepared to wait. If it takes 10 generations for a Noah to emerge and another 10 for an Abraham, I will be patient. However many times humans disappoint me, I will not change. However much evil they do in the world, I will not despair. I despaired once and brought a flood. But after I saw that humans are merely human, I will never bring a flood again. And this is the beautiful idea at the end. It says that God created humanity because God has faith in humanity. As we say every morning in Mode Ani, Rabba Emunatecha, great is your belief in me. We wake up every morning with that on our lips. Far more than we have faith in God, God has faith in us. We may fail many times, but each time we fail, God says, even to old age, I will not change. And even to gray hair, I will still be patient. I will never give up on humanity. I will never lose faith. I will wait for as long as it takes for humans to learn not to oppress, enslave, or use violence against other humans. That implies the Talmud is the only conceivable explanation for why a good, wise, all-seeing, and all-powerful God created such fallible, destructive creatures as us. God has patience. God has forgiveness. God has compassion. God has love. For centuries, theologians and philosophers have been looking at religion upside down. The real phenomenon at its heart, the mystery and miracle, is not our faith in God. It is God's faith in us. And that's the message that really I wanted to share with you, that hopeful and optimistic message of the fact that, yes, the fact that we're created in God's image means that we have the choice to choose right and to choose wrong. And we will inevitably sometimes choose right and sometimes choose wrong. But God is patient and God loves us. and. And he believes in us and the history of the world and mankind is our slow journey through the trials and tribulations of forgetting God and forgetting our purpose and mission and then realigning ourselves as we go closer and closer to the end of days with the Torah and with the Torah's teachings and the purpose for God's creating the universe. Any questions, anything that anybody would like to share on this topic?
Any any idea? 